You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, grab a Bible if you would. We're going to be in, uh, we'll be in Esther chapter 8. It's going to take a minute to get there, but that's where we're going to be. It's on page 488 if you're looking, just a little before 500 there if you want to remember that. Esther chapter 8, and then um, take that, find that, and just kind of set it to the side, because I've got to get you built up here to what we're doing today. Now, I went um, this last week, I was at a conference. Uh, it was great. I was in, um, in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul in February. Awesome. Did not go to the beach or anything like that, let's just say. Uh, it's uh, 40 degrees there. It's very different from 40 degrees here. It was very, very cold. Um, but I went and, um, <clears throat> and uh, I, had, I had a very interesting travel experience I won't bore you with. But uh, I got there the first night and it was a little bit after midnight and I had a rental car and it was a new company. I never used this company, never been to this airport or hadn't been in years. And uh, I was trying to find my car and I am not a car guy. Like, I don't have that, I don't have that gene in me that, that needs the cool car. So I, I'm literally, when I'm, getting, when I'm doing my rental, I'm like, give me, give me the, the worst possible car that you have. I want to pay as little as possible because I just want to get, I just need to get from here to here, and that's it. And so I did. So I, I, I don't remember what I got. I got the worst car I possibly could. And then they have two different pickups, and I went to one because that's where the thing told me to go. And I got there, and the guy said, you're at the wrong one. You need to go to the other one. And I said, it's after midnight. I'm not going to the other one. Please help me. And he goes, I'll tell you what. I will give you a, um, I will give you a, uh, a regular car, like a more expensive car, at the same rate for the cheapo one that you rented. And I said, great, just give me the car and I'm going to get going. And he gives me the keys and I signed the thing. And I went over and I get to my spot. And in the spot where I'm supposed to get my car, I did many double takes, triple takes, quadruple takes, because in the spot was a BMW, <laughs> which is not what I had anticipated. I'd expected a, I'm not going to say a car, I expected something else. Uh, and so I went there and I got it and I got in it and I thought, Honestly, like, I wasn't even excited. I was like, it's fine. And I got in the car, and then I was like, okay, I got I to gotta figure out how to, how to fly this thing, man. Like, how, do, how does this even work? And I, couldn't, I felt like such an old man. I couldn't figure out how to start it. And then I was like, well, whatever. And I reached over for the stick. It doesn't have a stick. It's got a little, like, some of you may have this, like a little thing that you flick, and it, it goes, you know, park reverse neutral, all that kind of stuff. And I, and I was like, well, I guess I do. And I hit it and it went to reverse. So I hit it the other way and it said like second. And I was like, well, I don't know what just happened there. And so I'm literally just sitting in the car, just like flipping it as many times as I can. Final, like the guy finally walked by. I was there like 10 minutes. The guy's like, everything all right? And I was, yeah, it's fine. So I finally, I got out of there. And um, I remember I went to the, the Timberwolves were playing the Dallas Mavericks, so I did take one night. I went to a game. The conference was done. And I went out, and I thought, I'm going to back into a spot. And it's the first time I'd used the backup camera. And so I kind of did straight, and I was about to back up into the thing. And it, I'm sitting here forever trying to find reverse. And when I found reverse, the backup camera came on. It's like, and the screen was, like, bigger than my TV at my house. And there were, I'm telling you... <laughs> 
there were so many lines. I felt like I was looking at like military radar or something like that. There's all the lines. And I looked, I was like, that just confuses me. Oh, I don't understand what all these lines could possibly be. So I'm trying to back up. And then people are, you know, right here stopped because dummies taken forever. And then so I, I finally just did it old school and looked. This was confusing. So I'm, I'm covering it up as I'm doing this, backing up. And I get in my spot and I put it in park, but I didn't trust that it said P because, you know, because I didn't have the stick. So anyway, it was just this whole like comedy of errors. There's so much more to the story. Um, it, it could get up and go, I have to tell you that. But um, so I, anyway, so I get the whole, this whole car thing, I'm just not, like I said, I'm not a car guy. I probably just convinced you of that. And, and part of the, the reason is I am just, I am so, I just want it so simple when it comes to cars. My first car was a 1987 Ford Tempo that had nothing. All the like optional things you could buy just had the plate over them. I mean, it was as simple as simple could be. I didn't even care the air, con- I lived in Texas. The air conditioning went out and then the window wouldn't go down on the driver's side. So it's already just so loud. You could get it down by kind of pushing it and then reaching up and sort of shoving it down, but that was about it. And so like I had this car, I, I loved this car. Now, granted, when I would take the woman that's now my wife out, um, we took her car more often because my muffler also fell off of my car. So you've got no air conditioning. You got to get the window down and it's like as you're driving down the thing, trying to have a conversation. Oh, so many good memories of this. Isn't this great? Anyway, so here, anyway, here's the deal. So when I, when I got the BMW, when I was on my little, my, my trip, I remember just feeling so overwhelmed because when it comes to that kind of thing, I just want it super duper simple. I want to download another app, which is what you had to do in order to get another little feature on the car. I didn't want to mess with that. I didn't know how to do all this stuff. I just wanted it as simple and plain as could be. And today, part of what you see throughout Esther is there's some deep, deep, deep complexities to it. And then we get to the end of this today. Hang with me, because I'm going to give you the keys to my Ford Tempo And I'm going to show you how easy and how basic of a message this actually is from Esther chapter 9. So I want to get us up to speed on what we're looking at here. Um, But at the end, you're going to see the plain, simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed today. Let me get you caught up all the way to chapter Nine. Like I said, have your Bibles and just have them sit there for just a minute. And I'm going I'm to be quoting some things. They'll come up on the screen. This will get us up to speed so you can be in the story. If you remember, the Jews were taken into captivity by the Babylonians uh, up north. <clears throat> Persia came in, Cyrus, and, uh, and overthrew the Babylonians and made, gave an edict to set all the Jews free. Um, the Jews, most of them, or many of them left. Many of them also said, we will stay here in, around the, the, uh, the capital of Susa, of the Persian Empire. And this is the story, the book of Esther is the story of the Jews that decided to stay around the capital city of Susa. And there's two main ones to talk about. One is a man named Mordecai, and he raised a young woman in, uh, in Hebrew. Her name is Hadassah, that I think is a beautiful name. Uh, her Persian name is Esther, and she's the namesake of this book. So Mordecai is a Jewish man that's related to Esther, brought her in. Esther's an orphan and is raising her in, in his home. So the, the Greeks, 
or another empire, they're a dominant force. And so the king of the Persians, Xerxes, is very preoccupied with them. And so he has this big planning session and he gets all his governors of the provinces together. And if you remember, he calls his wife Vashti and said, he calls her and says, come here and basically I'm going to parade you because you're beautiful in front of all these, uh, all these men, all these leaders in the nation, in the empire. And she says no. So he ruins her life sends her out, kicks her off the throne with him, and she's not heard of again. Well, Xerxes is still king, and Mordecai, who I mentioned earlier, heard of a plot to kill Xerxes, and he went and told some people about it. This will come back and play later. He told some people about it, and they went and they thwarted the plot, and so Xerxes was allowed to live, or he was able to live. Now, Xerxes is still looking for another queen, and so he has this, uh, this uh, kingdom-wide beauty contest to choose a queen. They're fighting the Greeks. They're losing. And so uh, Esther, through a turn of events, becomes his chosen queen. Now, there's another man you need to know named Haman, and he's come up the past couple weeks. Haman becomes the, uh, the second in command to Xerxes. He's a bad guy. You'll see him in just a minute here. He's a bad guy. He is the one that goes, and he, um, he gets appointed second in command. And so when, when Xerxes would walk in the empire, everybody would bow to him. And so when Haman was second in command, he, he bore the signet ring of Xerxes. Everybody's supposed to bow to him too. And people did, except for Mordecai. And Haman was such a proud man, he hated it. And so he was trying to figure out, if I just, if I just kill Mordecai, then they'll make a martyr of him. And he knew all the Jews in the empire might rise up. And so he has a different plot. He goes to Xerxes and tricks him into issuing a decree that all the Jews in the kingdom should be killed. Mordecai gets word of it, and he goes to Esther, who's queen. He says, please do something about this. And she's saying, well, I haven't seen the king in 30 days. She is supposed to go to the king, and if you come to the king unsummoned, then the penalty is death unless he extends his scepter to you to say, don't take her life or his life. And that's when Mordecai offers a line. He says, perhaps you were brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther says, I'm going to do it. Call God's people to fast, to pray, and I'm going to go before the king. And she says, if I perish, I perish. What happened? This will come up on the screen. Chapter 5, it says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. That went much better than anybody had anticipated. She has a simple request. She says, come to a banquet that I'm preparing for you, and it is going to be, uh, it is going to be for Xerxes, and it is going to be for Haman. And Haman goes, good deal. 
Me, the king, the queen, you talk about being in the inner circle. It is the two of them and then me at this little banquet that she's preparing for us. So it says he went out after she said that joyful and glad in heart. And then he walked out and he's all happy about the banquet. And then as he walks out, he sees Mordecai again. And it says that Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before him. And he remembered this Mordecai will not bow down before me. And he becomes furious again. And he goes back to some of his friends and says, what should we do about this Mordecai? And in chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited to get her together with the king. Verse 13, Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, this is their plan, let a gallows where you hang somebody, 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and so he had the gallows made. The edict is out to take the lives of the Jews, so he's not worried about the martyrdom factor now. Now he is just going, what do I do? And they say, kill him, kill him publicly. And so that's the plan. Now, in the middle of the night, Xerxes is having a hard time sleeping, and he has somebody come and read to him, and they come and read to him the history of what's happening in Persia. And he seems to just become aware for the first time. Someone says, you know, that plot against King Xerxes that this Jewish man helped thwart. And he goes, wait, what's that? What's that? And he goes, you know, the, the plot against you that they were trying to murder you and, and this man stepped in and warned you and so you're alive because of him. And he says, wait, 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 who, who is this guy that did that? And they say, his name is uh, Mordecai. And then in 6.3, the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And so the king goes, you know what we should do with Mordecai? We need to honor Mordecai. Who can help me do this? Go see if anybody's out in the courtyard right now that I can get to come and help me do this. And somebody looks and goes, oh, good news. Haman is out there. Haman can help you honor Mordecai publicly. You remember why Haman is there? He's there to go in and say, I'd like to hang this guy Mordecai from the gallows out here. And Xerxes says, come here to me, and, says, uh, and he says to him, I want you to go and dress him in a, in a royal robe, put a crown on his head, and publicly lead him throughout the empire, saying how much the king favors him. That's what I'd like you to do, Haman. Now, what was your thing? What did you want to say? <laughs> Never mind. 6.11, so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, very public place, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Everything is unraveling for Mordecai. They come to the banquet, the three of them, and Esther, this is so gutsy, Esther calls him out in front of Xerxes. Xerxes is furious and says, you know what your punishment is? You're going to be hung. Anybody know where we can get some gallows to hang somebody on? 
Oh, yeah, there's some back at uh, Haman's house. And so the gallows that were prepared for Mordecai, what happens next is Haman is hung from them. 710, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. One of the themes of the book of Esther is the great reversals throughout the book. And you can start to see them. Because what happens next is, remember, uh, Haman was the number two guy. He was going to try and kill Mordecai, hang him from the gallows. Well, now he's hanging on his own gallows. And now Mordecai ascends to become number two in the kingdom. And so Esther and Mordecai, or excuse me, yeah, Esther and Mordecai go before Xerxes and say, we got to talk about this decree that has gone out from the house of Haman that says, kill all the Jews in the empire. And the king says, do what you like. Chapter 8, verse 7. If you'd like to follow along, this is where we are. Chapter 8, verse 7. It says, Then King Ahasuerus, or that's Xerxes, said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. They've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Here is the problem, and we have such a a cultural leap that we have to make from where they were. It's difficult to understand what's about to happen. I would think he would say, hey, everybody, the decree I sent out, never mind. I take it back. The one that came from Haman, let me tell you what's happened. Haman turned out to be a traitor, and so we're going to take this back. But what we're going to see is we're going to see the bureaucracy and the politicizing of the Persian Empire that he actually doesn't revoke the decree because it's a king's decree and it can't be revoked. Did you know that? That they don't revoke the decree. Here's what they do. And as much as I look at this and go, I still feel like there would be a better plan somehow, um, you're going to see the Jews see what happens and they start rejoicing. Look at this. Uh, Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors, the officials, the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces all over the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and language. Verse 10, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children or women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Verse 13. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. This is a little bit confusing. He basically, he can't revoke it, and apparently he does the next best thing, which is to empower them and to call them publicly to arms. 
One commentator says this. He says, the intricacies of the Persian bureaucracy are on full display as Mordecai gives the Jews royal authority to defend themselves from any armed attack on the day Haman's decree takes effect. Now, this doesn't sound great to my 2024 Western American ears, but he can't, he can't revoke it and watch how they in the first century understood it. Look at verse 15. It says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. I think the NIV, trying to capture the spirit of it, says something like, the tables turned. The reverse occurred. That shouldn't have happened. I mean, none of this should have just logically happened. You don't have a group of people in an empire and the mighty empire bearing down on them and they end up turning the tables on them. They should be dead and gone. But the reverse occurred. Many commentators will actually outline the entire book of Esther based on the reversals in it. There's a lot of complexities to it. I'll just give you a couple examples. It starts out, the king is described as this powerful, pompous man, and the Jews in the empire are sort of weak and begging for table scraps. And by the end, what do you have? You have King Xerxes saying, anything you want, you let me know. And people all over the, all over the country are going, we need to side with Israel. We need to side with God's people in this because they are mighty. Complete opposite turned. You have Vashti, if you remember at the beginning. She, she was told to come before the king's presence, and she didn't, and so he basically ruined her life. Um, and here's Esther at the end who walks into the king's presence, which is a bigger offense, and she should have died, and instead she is rewarded. She is extolled for what she did. Whatever you want, let me know, even up to half the kingdom. You see the reversal that happens. You see Haman, who elevated himself to second in command, and there's a very pathetic scene where he is just begging Esther to spare his life. Haman made gallows to hang Mordecai, and at the end of the day, they needed gallows to end up hanging Haman, and they ended up hanging him on his own gallows. You have the reversal of the position of Haman and Mordecai, and then it gets to this point where you say... They're trying to make the Jews the outlaws in the kingdom. And all of a sudden, the kingdom just starts to side with them. Don't miss this in the book of Esther. One commentator says, such reversals, when compared with those of the Exodus, the Babylonian exile, and then the crucifixion and the resurrection, subtly reveal God's hands in the salvation history of his people. God is a God who grants reversals. 
There are many times in our life one thing should have happened, but the reverse occurred. So two things. Let me first tell you what we should not take from this passage, what we should not take from this passage. Um, And people have taken it this way, and God love them, they're wrong to do so. I cannot stand here today and tell you if you are in a bad situation, all you have to do is pray. And God is obligated to take your situation and reverse it and do exactly what he did in Esther. That's not what this is talking about. He can, but this is not. He is obligated to do it. Just pray. Just ask God. Just send me $100. Just pray one more time. Just read your Bible. Just do these things. And God is somehow obligated now to do it. That is not biblical. That's not what he's talking about here. And that's not what I want you to hear today. And there are pastors that you know that have stood up or in their writings or their teachings or something that have made it sound, even if they haven't said it explicitly, some of them have, it does sound like that. If you need something, you just pray and God is going to need to do that for you. I went, um, one week I went to, uh, this was years ago, I've told some of you this story, I went to um, Joel Osteen's church because I've never been and I just heard all these things. I was like, well, I'm just going to go see. And he wasn't there. He was on a book tour thing and there was another guy that was speaking and so he was preaching that morning and the, the message he gave, I left with this pit in my stomach and I was trying to place wise with my father-in-law and I left with this pit in my stomach and the guy was a very engaging speaker and I don't doubt maybe he was trying to be a, a, a sincere guy in what he was sharing, but it's sort of irrelevant. He's preaching to thousands of people. And what he shared was, he used something in Philippians, I think, to say, if you pray, God gets so excited when his people pray that he can't help but do whatever you ask of him. And I thought, maybe I just heard that wrong. And then he repeated it again. And that was the point he was driving home and driving home and driving home. How many people have lost faith because someone has said, if you want something, just ask and God should give it to you. And if he doesn't, he's a bad God. We set that expectation sometimes with people. And I'm here to tell you, that's not the way it works. I think that's the error that Job's friends made. If you remember the story of Job, where Job has nothing. It's all been taken from him. And they're all going, why are you praying? Why are you sitting around and and praying in the midst of this? Obviously, God's not good. He took all these things from you. So why are you still praying? And you remember what Job says? Naked I came into this world. Naked I will return. The Lord gave. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It didn't have to do with his circumstances at all. And so we have to be careful about looking at it. Even though God reversed the circumstances, it doesn't mean the way we think he should act in every situation, we all of a sudden have, have power over him to say, we're now demanding of you, God, that you reverse this in this way, or I'm going to think less of you. That's not what this is talking about. Here's what it is talking about, and this is what I would encourage you with today. Pray in such a way that Christians, that Christians find inspiring and non-Christians find foolish. Pray in such a way that Christians find inspiring and non-Christians find foolish. Why wouldn't you, if you're back in Esther, Mordecai's day, why wouldn't you pray? God, not my will, but your will be done. But if you could just work a miracle and spare us, that's what we're praying for. 
I sense that a lot of Christians' prayers have become pretty uninspiring. I don't want to feel foolish, like praying for this big thing, or like, what if it doesn't come to pass? And then I prayed for it, and now, so what was wrong? You know, what did I do wrong to not? How many times does Jesus need to say, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, move, and it'll move. Pray huge, huge prayers. You look throughout the scriptures and the things that inspire us and the things that move us. Like Elijah prayed, and in James, it actually, James is one of those practical books, and he sums up the whole thing by saying, the prayer of a righteous man has great power and it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Pray big prayers. Pray prayers that when you're sitting down with other Christians and you are praying out loud, that there would be a, that stirred my heart. Man, I want to pray like that. And I have to say, if, if all of our prayer life, if our secret, the, the words we even say in our head, if they were made known to a non-believer with an unregenerate heart, and they thought, that's a lovely prayer, that makes a lot of sense, we're probably not praying big enough. God, pray, move the mountain. God, I want to pray, but I also want to promise you that I will trust you through this. But I'm going to pray big things. And God does all the time. He does the greatest of reversals in the world. And he may want to work one in your life too. I'll give you some examples. Clear Creek Rock House. I mentioned them earlier. They're a dollar, dollar bill program this month. So many young people, teenagers, no parent, no father figure, a lot of them, very, very difficult, dark situations. Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of them now over the 20, I think it's 23 years that they've been, in, that they've been serving have had the outcome of their life completely changed because God moved in his people to bring about a reversal in their life. I think of Mean Street Ministries, one that we partner with a lot, the homeless ministry, um, that uh, a lot of times the, ho- the homeless are, um, are used to feel better about yourself. I-, I gave a little bit to them, so I kind of feel better about myself. I don't really have a compassionate heart. I have a compassionate heart for me feeling better about myself. And this is a ministry that goes and runs to them and helps them. These people's lives have a huge reversal that has happened. In fact, there's uh, Bible studies down there now. There's one, uh, there's one who was on the streets that came to the Bible study and is now turned around and is now ministering on the streets where he once lived. His life should have looked like this, but the reverse occurred. Tanzania, <clears throat> there's a, several young women that don't have as much of a, a shot in life. As, uh, as some of the, the young men over there. And just right now, we have 54 of them that we're sponsoring to help them get an education, pour Christ into them, so that one day their testimony is gonna be, I should have gone like this, but the reverse occurred. Life's Options is a beautiful ministry. We'll tell you more about this in the coming weeks, but this is um, women that have unwanted pregnancies. And there were um, several children that were, um, that were gonna be aborted and um, at the end of the day, uh, just this last year, 13 children are alive because of this ministry. The reverse occurred. 
for them as well. The greatest reversal. I'm going to give you the keys to my Ford Tempo now. The greatest reversal that's ever happened is you and I deserve the wrath of God for our own unrighteousness. God has nothing but holiness. All we have in and of ourselves is unrighteousness. God has holiness and no sin, and we have sin and no holiness. Because of the cross, the reverse occurred. The punishment that we ought to take for our sin was placed on our Savior at Calvary, and he took it. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't look and see Jim's filthy rags of deeds. He doesn't see my unrighteousness. He looks at me and he sees his son, Jesus Christ, and his righteousness that has been given to me. And if you are in Christ, the greatest reverse that has ever happened is the destiny that you and I should have has been reversed because of the cross, because the holiness of God given to us and our unrighteousness taken by Christ. That's the great reversal. Martin Luther called this the great exchange, exchanging the righteousness of God for the sinfulness of man. 2 Corinthians 5.21, John MacArthur calls this the single most important text in the Bible that summarizes the Christian gospel. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, for, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You got all these reversals throughout Esther. Does the gospel say that there is a God who is above circumstances? Of course. And oftentimes the circumstances are just turned on their head. And it's beautiful when God does that. The biggest reversal of all is you and I deserve death and judgment. But at the cross, the reverse occurred. <laughs>